Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on January the 3rd, 2011. For newcomers to the show, look into CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com. It's a wealth of information, hundreds of talks have gone up there over the years and you can download them for free in audio version. They all carry, all those sites carry, you'll see on the com site, um, transcripts too in English of a lot of the talks I've given. And if you want something in another language, go into Alan Watt Sentient, sentinel.eu, and help yourself to the variety offered there. And remember too, you're the audience who bring me to you, so keep donations coming. If you want to buy the books and discs and so on I have for sale, remember from the U.S. you can use a personal check and you can still use an international postal money order from your post office to Canada, and you can send cash, or you can use PayPal to donate um, or to order. If you want to order, send the appropriate donation, followed by your name, address, and order, and I'll get it right out to you. And that's the same across the rest of the world. You have Western Union, which can wire directly. You can use MoneyGram, which is a bit cheaper, I think, and MoneyGram also gives you the option of getting a check which you post to me and uh, that's even cheaper still some people use PayPal again for ordering and you can use uh, cash as, uh, until the bank say no which will come one of these days probably within the next couple of years I'd imagine as we go totally cashless and it's interesting to so many as I've gone through incredible changes who've been listening to the show for years and uh, who are well educated on this whole global society that's been brought in while we live. We're living through amazing history in the making. And the trouble, of course, is that there's nothing really surprising because we know the agenda. We've read the big boys' books themselves and a lot of the big helpers that helped to set up this actual part that we're living through now uh, with the psychologists, behaviorists, and philosophers, etc., that were on board with the think tanks. We've read their books. We know how they must introduce everything else after uh, the total unification of the planet, which is just going in on incrementally right now. We're pretty well there. And um, amazing things, of course, are really planned. And they're underway in your face. And as predicted, too, the general population once more are oblivious to what's been done to them, how even their behavior is being altered and they don't know it, and how they adapt into the new systems. They kind of float into it, really, and without a conscious thought of why this is all happening. Uh, they, they put it down to simply austerity measures, etc. They don't realize they're very, the very fabric of what's left of society has now to be reshaped into the super-Soviet system, the type that the Soviets wanted to bring in and, and couldn't manage it. It wasn't time for it. Uh, the big players in the Fabian Society talked about using psychology and um, with all of its tricks and the repertoires on the general public to bring in the perfect, obedient citizen in a socialist society where they would eventually be 
happy to be sterilized, uh, and they'd get lots of fun and entertainments, and they'd be good little goody-two-shoe citizens who would do what the government wanted. So a dream of tyrants uh, that's been on the go for thousands of years is materializing right now, and the bulk of the populace are clueless about it even happening at all, even when they adapt into the new system themselves. When they start parroting the politically correct terms, when they, they show the, the distress at certain topics or names or, or, or words are even brought up, um, you, you can tell that it's working on them when they have conflict in their mind just by the use of certain terms being said in their presence. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, we're back and we're cutting through the matrix. Some time ago I've talked about behaviorism and modification of the mind by experts, etc. And how governments are using them on board now. They're part of the government, they're appointed to government. And I went through one of the, I think it was um, Sunstein's uh, writings about this too. He's a behaviorist who works with Obama. But they're still behind Britain to an extent. Britain's way ahead. It's always a flagship for everyone else to copy, and um, which is a great thing to think about, isn't it? When you, when they're so, they're so bankrupt, they're so incredibly bankrupt and so jaded and overcrowded, they want to bring this same system to the rest of the world. So God help us all. Anyway, uh, here they are in Britain. And I've mentioned this before, how Whitehall, as they call it in, in Britain, that deals with all laws and rules and regulations for the entire country, is using teams, a team of these um, psychological experts, supposedly, to change everyone's behavior. And they're really going ahead with it uh, in a big, big way. Uh, and eventually, of course, there'll be nothing optional about any of it at all. And this article here kind of rehashes what I've said before. From, it's from The Independent. It says, um, the big government wants to change the way we think. So shame and vanity, laziness and desire to fit in, peer pressure in other words, are all to be used as tools of government policy by ministers, as these appointees, acting on the advice of a new psychology unit in Whitehall. The first glimpse into the confidential work of the Cabinet Office's behavioural insight team came on Tuesday when ministers suggested members of the public should be able to make small charitable donations when using cash points and their credit cards. Understand the welfare system, you see, that they're going to take the money from the welfare and redistribute that across the world for the world's welfare. And at home, of course, you'll be left with charitable organizations to, to dole out your crumbs to you. But anyway, it says here, on Friday, the cabinet office again followed the, the unit's advice in proposing uh, that learner drivers be opted into an organ donation scheme when they apply for a license and also floated the idea of creating a lottery to encourage people to take tests to prove they've quit smoking. These initiatives are example of the application of mental techniques, which, while seemingly paradoxical to the coalition's goal as a coalition government of a smaller state, are likely to become a common feature of government policy. And then it says the public will have social norms, new social normals, you see, heavily emphasized to them in an attempt to increase healthy eating, voluntary work, and tax gathering. 
Appeals will be made to egotism in a bid to foster individual support for the big society. I say it's big brothers, big society, you see. Well, much greater use will be made of default options, and that's what Sunstein called it too, default options. They can actually set your mind like a computer. So he came up with a, a bunch of um, problems to choose from. You, you go automatically set yourself back to your conditioned default position. Anyway, to select benevolent outcomes for passive citizens, I guess that's the ones that get mugged all the time, exemplified by the organ donation scheme. A clue to the new approach came early in life of the coalition government in a sentence from its May agreement, which said, our government will be a much smarter one, or we're going to smart government now, these are the guys who get you bankrupt, shunning the bureaucratic levers of the past and finding intelligent ways to encourage, support, and enable people to make better choices for themselves. Now, remember, when they say better choices, it means they, they know the choices they want you to take and make. That's what they mean by better. But, but I want better for whom, I wonder. It certainly won't be for the public. The Prime Minister, David Cameron, established a seven-strong unit in July, since when, since when the government has uh, declined to divulge all its members and the full extent of its work. They've got university specialists and professors working on board with them, too. The Independent has learned its guiding principles and some of the projects that have used its favoured techniques. It says, one experiment involved Her Majesty's revenue and customs, that's a taxation system, secretly changing the wording of tens of thousands of tax letters, leading to the collection of an extra $200 million I guess it's pounds, I don't know, in income tax. Uh, other ideas tried elsewhere. Uh, probably what it was, they put a stamp on it with a hanged man. Uh, other ideas tried elsewhere that have been studied by the unit include reducing recidivism, that's back to crime repeatedly, by changing public perception of ex-prisoners and cutting health costs by encouraging relatives to look after family members in patient hotels. It means you look after them yourself. That's your national health system. The unit draws inspiration from the Chicago University professor Richard H. Taller and his colleague Cass Sunstein, whose book Nudge, Improving Decisions About Health, Wealth and Happiness, is required reading for conservative front benchers. And of course, as I say, Cass Sunstein is quite an interesting guy because he also works with Homeland Security, uh, finding uh, teaching teams and people who operate the Internet to go into all the different uh, chat rooms. Uh, and eventually take them over and have them all fighting. And actually, they can actually diffuse the reason for being there in the first place. When you have no no direction to go in, when you, when you were thought you were fighting for something and he's diffused it, you all fall apart and just walk away. Uh, this is a full-scale war that's going on in the information war, and people don't even know it. And Cass Sunstein and a whole bunch of his pals, of course, are up there too, guiding and training a lot of these characters that you're probably chatting away uh, to under various names in your in your various um, uh, sites that you go into and chat to. Professor Taller, who advises the UK team, suggests that instead of forcing people to behave more virtuously through legislation, governments can guide them in the right direction using psychology. Ministers should become, in his jargon, Choice architects, so they love architects and building bridges and all that, eh? making virtuous choices more attractive than an unvirtuous ones. In his book, uh, he quoted the example of automatically opting workers into company pensions to raise the amount saved for old age, which will come into force in UK in 2012, having been enacted by Labour 
the Labour government. Another is from Amsterdam's Schiphol Airport, where uh, flies were etched onto urinals to give men something to aim at. Oh, my God, these are this is, this is the characters that are giving your thoughts. Reducing spillages in the gents' toilets. So I guess they're so used to playing video games, now they're peeing at flies, for God's sake. On the, yeah. This is what they're bringing you. These guys get paid to, to dream up this rubbish. Right? Mr. Cameron embraced nudge theory two years ago in a speech about broken Britain, but has subsequently placed more emphasis on his own idea of the big society, which isn't his because Wells wrote about it 100 years ago, where individuals and charities play a much greater role uh, as the state shrinks, basically as the government, in other words, keeps all the cash, takes it from what it's supposed to go to, and does other things with it. Both ideas, however, fit neatly into the work of the Insight team, which reports to key government figures, including Jeremy Haywood, the Prime Minister's Permanent Secretary, Steve Hilton, and Mr. Cameron's Director of Strategy, and Sir Gus O'Donnell, the Cabinet Secretary. Central to this is limiting regulation and cost, according to the U.S. Director, Dr. David Halpern, a former Cambridge University social psychology lecturer. In comments to policymakers and business people in Brussels, recorded by the Independent last month, Dr. Halpern said one of the policies of this new administration is essentially a one-in, one-out approach to regulation, so departments wanting to introduce a new form of regulation have to get rid of one at the same time. It's amazing, since 2001, Britain had passed more laws uh, in, in two or three years than it had in its entire history of parliamentary government. So now they're trying to get rid of some laws as they bring new ones in. So anyway, that's what they're bringing in. It's, it's all um, behaviorism and psychology. And as I say, the public won't know. Uh, they won't know what's really going on. And here's a little article, part, a part here, should, I can continue this article. Dr. Halpern's approach carried over from his days with Mr. Blair centers on his favorite term. It's called Mind Space, an acronym that stands for messenger, that is, he who communicates information affects its impact. And then incentives and norms, what others do influence individuals. Defaults, preset options tend to be accepted. Salience, relevance, and novelty attract attention, priming subconscious cues. This is all taken from marketing as well, by the way. Because the real experts, as, as uh, Bertrand Russell and others knew, uh, had been Madison Avenue. They'd been playing with the subconscious minds of the public for many, many, many years. So when you think, as I said before, when you think an idea is your, is your own, it's not at all. It's been marketed to you. Uh, someone in your peer group picks it up and uses the, the, the new terms or whatever. And most of them around them will start doing it too. Uh, the, the studies have also shown time after time that it's easier uh, for the middle class or the well-educated classes to pick up new terms and adapt quicker because they have a, a greater hunger to belong to their own peer group, which is quite, quite fascinating. So the less educated you are, the more resistant you will be to picking up the buzzwords and seeing all the political right, correct things whenever a certain topic is brought up. But that's what's running us now. Behaviorism, and it was predicted again, as I say, over well over a hundred years ago. This is where they'd bring us to, and now they're using it. Before they could do that, of course, they had to destroy all the old norms because people would have objected to it, you see, 
But now that the place is in such dysfunction, there's nothing to stand in its way. And, of course, television will be used to the maximum uh, to get all this impact across to them. Quite interesting, though. And here's a little bit of trivia here, too, and it's... um, People never think of the Rothschilds as doing much except banking, but I've gone through the history of uh, some of the Rothschilds who were also scientists. And um, here's another one here. And, and I'd read about her, and I think one of her, I think it was her brother, in the early 1900s, who had a fascination with fleas and disease, especially disease-carrying fleas, because the Malthusian poor houses or workhouses were still in effect at that time. And the music's coming in, so I'll go into the, these, how she's working on how to cross-contaminate beds, how close it should be after this break. Hi folks, I'm back and we're cutting through the matrix, just talking about Miriam Rothschild. So I'd read a book, um, in fact it was a book that I think it was she and her brother put out when they were only about 12 years of age, because they were really into fleas at that time, especially the ones that could carry disease, also lice and other wonderful things like that. Strange hobby for the, the offspring of bankers to, to be into, but not really if you're into population control too, and that kind of thing, because they say Malthus's policies really took into effect uh, the closeness of beds in the poor houses, as he called them, and how long it would take someone to get contaminated by infected insects from the person next door, how close should they put them. That was all part of the strategy of this killing them all off. So this is an article here, and it's, it's from the New York Times. Miriam Rothschild takes or talks of fleas, and it says, and it was an old article, it was published in '84. But I thought it was prevalent or relevant to what I'm talking about tonight because, as I say, you have no idea how long the eugenics program has been underway and all the big characters have been involved in it for so such a long time. But it says here, because of her extensive knowledge of fleas, Miriam Rothschild is somewhat of a hero in Australia. She's celebrated, too, for her work with, her, with mites and monarch butterflies. Miss Rothschild, who was born in 1908, and now presents a regal mean, was here, that's like Manor, was here recently to promote her book, Dear Lord Rothschild, recounting the career of her uncle, the second Baron Rothschild, who is one of the, the most remarkable collectors of all time. He's true, he collected butterflies, countries, nations, you know, so. But she traces her interest in fleas, not to her uncle, but to her father, who on expeditions to many parts of the world, assembled what was probably the most complete collection of fleas ever made. Really a fascinating hobby you have, collecting fleas. By her count, he had described about 500 new species and subspecies. In an interview at her son's apartment in the Osborne, an ornate Victorian apartment house at 57th Street and 7th Avenue, she explained how, uh, through her knowledge of fleas, she was able to help Australia control its plague of rabbits. When rabbits were imported into Australia, she said, they did not bring with them the rabbit fleas that carry the disease myxomatosis. Free from the disease that normally keeps their numbers under control, the, the rabbits proliferated, overwhelming the vegetation of Australia's outback countryside. And so it says, uh, repeatedly efforts to breed rabbit fleas for introduction into Australia failed, and the British government turned to Miss Rothschild for help. 
She made the describing discovery that at least one insect can reproduce only under stimulus from a mammalian hormone. Specifically, the female fleas could not reproduce until they'd drawn blood from a pregnant rabbit. Likewise, she found that birth control pills for human use worked like a poem, she called it a poem, in turning off the fleas' reproductive cycle. Amazing what they're all into, eh? And you thought it was all about counting cash. Unfortunately, she said, British rabbit fleas don't like great heat and abandoned rabbits that were carrying them in the hot outback. She therefore collected fleas from rabbits in sunny Spain, en route to Australia with a load of rabbits infested with Spanish fleas. She had terrible trouble with authorities in India and was almost turned back, etc., etc., etc. Anyway, she's a big hero for introducing disease that kills off these rabbits. And I don't know if you've ever seen these rabbits dying off them. It's an awful thing to see because they're all over the roads, staggering. Their, their, their heads tend to swell up and their eyes kind of bug out a bit and so on. And then they're, they're just helpless prey uh, and a lot of them get run over. It's an awful lot lingering, terrible death. But these folk have been into these diseases too. Uh, they could actually affect humans and that really was their main interest uh, for the, the Rothschild family. It's one of their side specialities, that is. And he's an article here too. Uh, and as really ex-president Moshe Katsav was found guilty of rape. I wonder how they'll get him around that because there's a lot of laws you can really talk your way around if you understand the book of the law. I'll put this up tonight too, this link as well. And then, of course, we also know too that organic is going to go the way that the dodo bird eventually because everything's getting contaminated and the big boys, of course, seem to want it that way. This article is from the Australian. It says, Mutant canola crops genetically engineered to survive repeated sprayings of herbicide have been approved for planting. This is despite the furor over GM contamination of an organic farm. There's been quite a few in the States as well where they've ended up contaminating whole, whole farms or fields with their GMO stuff. And this is for organic food. The West Australian Minister for Agriculture and Food, Terry Redman, has called on the organic industry to bend its rules to permit some GM material, declaring purity to be unrealistic. So now they're saying, well, it's just too unrealistic to, be, to have a pure seed anymore, you see, in this day and age. Uh, we'll have them all up at the, you know, these special food banks way up in the Arctic Circle, uh, and no one else will have them. So WA grain farmer Steve Marsh was stripped of his organic certification this week after GM canola seeds uh, allegedly blew one and a half kilometres over his boundary from a neighbouring property at Conjunup, south east of Perth. He um, is now set, set, setting an Australian precedent by threatening to sue for damages. Good luck to you, because they've tried that in Canada and uh, the, the judiciary is all on board with the GMO boys. Since the GM industry must control its technology, Mr. Marr said yesterday, if a GM farmer wishes to grow it, that's his business, but he must be responsible that it doesn't impact on his neighbours. Well, it has to because the stuff that blows in the wind can blow for 100 miles or more. So what can you actually do? You know, The government wants it. It's a mandate. It's a mandate. Everybody's got to have it. So they say. Back with more after these messages. You're listening.
listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Hi, folks. We're cutting through the matrix. Another odd thing that happens once in a while, mostly in the last few years, I've noticed, are when yeah, you have this kind of story that pops up. And whenever, generally you seldom get a, a comeback from the experts, supposedly, who are dealing with it to give us the real story of what happened. But it said here that um, more than a thousand blackbirds fell out of the, an Arkansas sky. And um, it's now it's up to about 5,000, I believe. It says here, officials are investigating why more than 1,000 birds, most of them dead, I'd hope so, if they, you know, in the state of dying, I'd say, fell off the sky in the U.S. state of Arkansas on New Year's Eve. It says the Arkansas Fish and Game Commission said it began receiving reports of the falling birds about 23.30. By midnight, more than 1,000 red-winged blackbirds had fallen in one area of the city of Beeb. The birds could have been hit by lightning or highly altitude hail, said the, the AFGC ornithologist Karen Rowe. About 65 dead birds have been sent off for scientific analysis to determine the cause of death. And it says, it doesn't appear as though the birds were poisoned, Ms. Rowe said. Then they then go through um, the different reasons. It could be tornado damage and so on, and severe weather could be the cause Yada yada. So it's only involved a flock of blackbirds that only involved them falling out of the sky. It's unlikely they were poisoned, but they'll, they'll do a, a necropsy uh, uh, to do the only determination to see what they really died for, trauma or toxin or whatever they said. There's another a, an article that said that it could be some fear of something that happened that, that, that made them just drop dead. But anyway, if, if this ties in with the next one because in the same place you have this article, Massive Fish Kill Blankets, Arkansas River, and CNN. It says an estimated uh, 100,000 drumfish have died, officials say. The fish kill is not de- believed to be related to the bird deaths in another town. And um, they say the size of fish kill points to possible disease outbreak. So uh, dead drumfish floated in the water and lined the banks of a 20-mile stretch of the Arkansas River near Ozark, about 125 miles northwest of Little Rock said Keith Stevens of the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission. A tugboat operator discovered the fish kill Thursday night, and fisheries officials collected some of the dying animals to conduct tests. So it makes you wonder what's going on in certain areas, or something else being tested that we're not being told about. And of course, that's what fits into conspiracy. You can never prove a conspiracy, and that's why it's a good conspiracy. And um, But something's going on, obviously. And we'll probably never get the, the real story of what's been happening. I know even some of these big cell phone towers that have the big drums there, they can really pump out some um, a lot of power. Uh, have been blamed in the past too, where birds fly between two of the towers as they're really transmitting with high intensity at night, because they do that for the military. And they can just drop dead right then, just flying through them. But we'll never probably know what's really ever going on. And then we go into this little thing, which doesn't surprise me at all, because you see a generation's grown up with nothing but noise in their head from other sources. It's not their friends chatting, it's these electronic gadgets they've been brought up with. And now they've found out that they've got withdrawal if they try and get off it for even 24 hours. They already know this in places like Korea, where they also have an awful problem with gaming addiction with the children who simply can't stop. 
It's like anorexia. They don't even eat. They just keep playing the game until they about die. This is turning off mobile phones, avoiding the internet and tuning out of the television and radio can leave people suffering from symptoms similar to those seen in drug addicts trying to go cold turkey, researchers have found. And it says that the scientists ask volunteers to stay away from all emails, text messages, Facebook and Twitter updates for 24 hours. That's not a long time. They found that the participants began to develop symptoms typically seen in smokers attempting to give up. Some of those taking part said they felt like they were undergoing cold turkey to break a drug habit. And they probably all know what a drug habit is because so many of them are on drugs prescribed by their doctors at school. It says, we, we are not just seeing psychological symptoms, we are also seeing physical symptoms. The findings will fuel concerns raised by neurologists and psychologists about the impact that excessive use of the internet, computer games and social networking sites are having on the so-called net generation of teenagers and young adults. This is an experiment called Unplugged Volunteers at 12 universities around the world, including 125 students. Uh, Bournemouth University spent 24 hours without access to computers, mobile phones, iPods, televisions, radio, and even newspapers. It's amazing that they probably had to start talking to each other, a strange concept. You know, they wouldn't know what to do or what to say. But... Um, it's quite interesting, as I say, but very predictable too, because there's never a moment these characters really have silence. They're always fed data or info from some other source. It doesn't originate in their own mind, their own brain. So it's not surprising at all. And then, again, too, they're always talking about weather modification. Well, this article here says they've been actually doing it in some deserts now. It says, um, this is from Mail Online, uh, for centuries, people living in the Middle East have dreamed of turning the sandy desert into land fit for growing crops with fresh water on tap. Now that holy grail is a step closer after scientists employed by the ruler of Abu Dhabi claimed to have generated a series of downpours. Fifty rainstorms were created last year in the state's eastern Al Ain region using technology designed to control the weather. And it's a different system which they're using. It's not the usual seeding the clouds with um, silver oxide and stuff, uh, they're using a different technique altogether. And it was a secret project. It says, um, the, they have a natural tendency to attach, uh, well, they talk about how, how it starts, how rain starts off with negatively charged particles called electrons and all that. And um, so what they did, they used ionizers to produce the negatively charged particles. You no know, rings and rings and rings of these ionizers, giant ionizers, to actually call them to start forming rain. And apparently now it's awfully successful. As long as they can get enough humidity in the air, at least 30%, to start the process, they can actually make it happen. So they can make the deserts bloom, as they say. Make the deserts bloom. And I've talked before about how we're all to go cashless. And it's been in major newspapers over the years. And the big bankers have had world meetings about it too. And it all ties in with total information network, because every transaction, everything you purchase, every candy you eat must be monitored. And I'm not kidding you. Everything you do has to go to government, all the, the data information. And technology works hand in hand with governments, this world government system. Technology is part of the military industrial complex. And it says here, AT&T, Verizon and T-Mobile are pushing for a new standard for mobile payments relying on just a wave of your cell phone. 
It says, are you ready to give up cash and maybe even give up your credit cards? I'm not, but there are plenty of companies from Google to AT&T that think we will. The idea's been around for more than 20 years, but it's never come to fruition because the basic technological tools weren't readily available. Now they are. They're called smartphones. Earlier this month, Google waved around a prototype Android phone with a special chip that lets customers pay simply by waving the phone near a cash register. Known as near-field communication, the trick is to use short-range radio signals to send your credit card or bank account information directly to a register so that you don't have to swipe or sign for things. Makes it so much easier, isn't it? Or get your hands dirty with all that filthy lucre. In one sense, such technology is overkill. Many of us can already wave a credit card at the gas pump or Quickie Mart and have a sale immediately rung up on the register. Credit card companies call it contactless payment. But contactless payments use a one-way system where your credit card info is simply passed from the card to the scanner. You don't receive, see, any information about what you purchased or about what your current balance is on the card itself. Smartphones could give shoppers that important information. Do you really need a card or a phone to tell you what you just bought? Uh, I think you need more than a phone, folks. You know. Anyway, plus a digital receipt. And stores could incorporate electronic coupons on the spot, etc., etc. There'd be incentives, in other words. Prompts, you know, to go along with it. And once you're enough of your peer group using it, well, you'll just have to go along too because you don't want to be left out of the group. Heaven forbid they might shun you. But this is the sort of stuff that's going on. Now, I'm also putting a link up tonight about school biometrics because they're all going full tilt to train a generation uh, into biometrics for everything that they need, including their food. I mean, that's an appalling thing when you think about it, where you're getting trained to use biometrics, scans and all that, just to get your food at school. And, and remember, a generation was already trained going through these various uh, metal detectors and so on as they pushed up the crime rate through schools, getting them used to the world post-9-11, before 9-11 came along, getting them used to searches and all the rest of it and pat-downs. That was all in preparation for what's going on today. And they think it's all quite normal, that crew, that, that particular generation. But here's our angry Angus Council's appalling use of school biometrics. A number of parents have reacted angrily to Angus Education's uh, convener, Peter Neal's assertion that no family has decided to opt out of biometric identity systems involving school children, with one terming the technology appalling. It says here, uh, and Tuesday, Mr. Neal defended the local authorities' use of the system, which allows children to access school meals and library books, claiming that there was absolutely no security risk. He added that council officials had not received a single complaint on the process since its introduction in 2001, and that all parents appeared happy to have their children's fingerprints taken as well. I mean, this is, this is eye scan, everything, fingerprints. However, Kiri Muir's father of two, Graham Galloway, was just one of several parents who contacted the courier to refute Mr. Neal's claim. Well, Mr. Neal's an obvious liar, isn't he? So he should be out of his job just on that point alone. Anyway, he says his two daughters attend Southmuir Primary School, and each year he's asked the school not to take their fingerprints, as he's worried that it's tantamount to brainwashing. He said there's a security risk we have to ask where this data is being stored. But quite apart from that, my main concern is that it's teaching a generation of children that it's fine for people in authority to routinely ask for biometric information, and that is the purpose of it. That is the purpose of it. 
He added, when they leave school, they might think it's perfectly fine for the police to ask for this kind of information. It's a training exercise, that's what it's all about. Another parent who asked not to be named said the fact that the council seemed unaware that some families had opted out of the system made him less than confident about his ability to protect data. The debate has surfaced in the wake of figures obtained by the Liberal Democrats which show that such technology is now used in 68 schools uh, in Scotland, uh, across Scotland, and there's lots more in England too. But it's training the children, training, 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 for a world where there is no privacy, no right to privacy whatsoever. You're a product, on, and you're, you're actually what you are, is a, a new type of serf owned by the new type of state, whether you know it or not. That's what it's all for. And this is in a country, too, in Britain, as I say, where the first five months of each person working is to, uh, will be paying tax. That, that's how much you're working for the government now, for, for five months solid, before you're actually earning anything for yourself. Britons will spend every penny they earn during the first five months of next year, this is this year now, on taxes, a leading think tank has calculated. Tax Freedom Day is the day when Britons begin working for themselves rather than the tax man and falls on May the 30th in 2011, compared to May 27th this year, the Adam Smith Institute revealed. The main reason for the three extra days is the rise in value-added tax, which increases from 17.5% to 20%. On January the 4th, that's 20, a 20% tax on top, on top of everything you buy. Everything, from a candy bar to whatever. And that's just one tax, it's in the open, there's a lot of hidden taxes as well. Tom Clorty, executive director of the Adam Institute, uh, described Britons as being desperately overtaxed. Well, I guess he's an expert for saying that, eh? He's obviously a very wise man. Who'd have thought of saying it? He says, well, it's hitting every household in the country. The value-added tax hike is going to dent consumer confidence and put a dampener in our economic recovery. You aren't going to have a recovery. It's not on the cards. In Canada, they call the value-added tax the general sales tax, which they just harmonize with another tax recently, and that will start getting bumped up in leaps and bounds until it's probably at the same rate as Britain's got there that are 20%, and governments just love a value-added tax, to unite countries. And again, that was the Council on Foreign Relations idea, this value-added tax. They wanted everyone in the European uh, community, as they call it, to introduce it. And the same thing will have to be done for uh, North America, for the North American Union, when they get completely on the go. That's why they started it in Canada first. And they started it in Canada when Brian Mulroney was Prime Minister, that shows you how long ago that they already knew where they were going with this whole North American agreement idea and Fortress America, etc., etc. But we are being trained, constantly trained, as I say, for the next step and the next step and the next step. Sometimes you can go halfway through your life before you realize what one part of the training that you received was actually for when they bring in the new system. That's how perfectly every generation is trained in advance for the system that the experts have designed them to move into down the road. Quite the world we live in, and most folk are totally, as I say, oblivious. They adapt without thinking. I think, uh, as I say, Jacks E. Lull was one of the better writers about this, and he said people don't think through things through reason. They work by osmosis. 
It's a form of osmosis that information just passes through their mind, is picked up when they hear someone else talk about it. It becomes their opinion. It becomes what they will do themselves, what they will wear, what they will say. And there's to be no critical analysis in their minds whatsoever about this, this particular or that particular that has been thrust upon them. They just adapt into it quite, quite easily. But um, another article here too I'd like to talk about is this farce of the uh, global warming. You, you might not even hear so much of the term global warming so much. It's just called climate change now, and that's good enough. That can cover everything in it and all things. And uh, it was really to get the big cash grab through that they got in the last one for their world society. That's what it was all really about. But I've read this before too, but it's, it's good to read it again. New Zealand climate scientists admit to faking temperatures. The actual temperatures show little warming over the last 50 years. And as I say, this is a New Zealand one, but other countries are put out their own ones now too. It says, um, the scientists doing the fabrication are usually employed by the government agencies or universities which thrive and exist on taxpayer research dollars dedicated to global warming research. A classical example of this is the New Zealand Climate Agency, which is now admitting their scientists produce bogus warming temperatures for New Zealand. And I'll continue with this when I come back from this break. Folks, we're back and we're cutting through the matrix, just going through this article from New Zealand and how their scientists, along with all the other scientists, fudged all the figures and lied and so on because they were getting awfully well paid uh, by grants getting thrown at them by government agencies and everyone else. But it says that the NIWA makes the huge admission that New Zealand has experienced hardly any warming during the last half century for all their talk about warming, for all the rushed invention of the Levin Station series to prove warming, this new series shows that no warming has occurred here since about 1960. Almost all the warming took place from 1940 to 60, when the IPCC says that the effect of CO2 concentrations was trivial. Indeed, global temperatures were falling during that period. Almost all of the 34 adjustments made by Dr. Jim Salinger to the 7SS have been abandoned, along with his version of the comparative station methodology. And there's a link here to show you all the fake uh, temperature charts that the guys put up there, which is all now in disrepute. But uh, it won't stop them, of course. As I say, the main objective was to get massive cash grants given to them for that last meeting at Cancun. And uh, they'll set up a massive bureaucracy across the world to further integrate the world's economic systems. That's what it's really all about for the new world society. Of course, you'll pay for it all, as always. And and the reason I'm reading this stuff, too, from all over the world, nothing really much from the States apart from birds falling out of the sky, is that the States right now is, is so quiet. With some, something big is going on. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of laws getting rammed through and different things, but uh, they're, they're keeping people distracted and more trivia than anything else. And uh, there's more news coming out of other countries. And, again... Police, uh, Britain, which is the flagship for us all to emulate, says police demand new powers to stop and search terror suspects. Everybody's now 
could be a terrorist, therefore they can stop anybody and search you in the streets. I've no, I've no doubt at all. Eventually, you're going to see strip searches in front of everyone else as you get de- dehumanized further and further until it'll be a common thing to see. But it says here, police have asked the government for a new counter-terrorism power to stop and search people without having to suspect them of involvement in crime. The Guardian has learned. Now, how what's that going to do with terrorism? Um, and they've got no, no reason to suspect them of being involved in crime, why would they stop you? But it doesn't matter, does it? Senior officers have told the government the new laws need to better protect the public again. Here's the excuse against attempted attacks on large numbers of people and are hopeful they can, be, they can win the minister's backing. A previous law allowed counter-terrorism stops without suspicion. Section 44 of the Terrorism Act 2000 was scrapped this year by the Home Secretary, Theresa May, after European judges struck it down for breaching human rights. But police, including the Metro Force, which leads the UK fight against terrorism, say they need a boost to their counter-terrorism powers, which they worry are now too weak. They've asked for a law which would be much more limited than Section 44. It would be restricted to a specified time and to a limited geographic area or a specific place or event. The new stop-and-search powers would need primary legislation to become law, and it's believed it could be introduced within months. Police believe it will be needed to protect events such as the 2012 Olympics in London, state occasions such as Trooping the Colour, and major summits such as the G20 when they're held in the UK. You know, back in the 60s, I think, they started churning out a lot of movies about the future, and starting, of course, in books even long before that, in sci-fi books, showing you this bleak, miserable, totalitarian society worldwide. And it wasn't because they had great imaginations that they all knew it was coming down the pike. And here we are living through it, and folk can't even recognize what it happens to be. There's a lot of nudges make you that way, right? From Hamish myself from Ontario, Canada, it's good night to me, your God, or your gods go with you.